This is the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Blanc, episode number 79. Let's do this. You're listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast, where we'll talk about all aspects of buying apartment buildings with a special focus on raising money from others. And now, your host, Michael Blanc. Hey everyone, welcome to the show today. I want to start first by giving a shout out to E.R. Martinez, who left a five-star review on iTunes, and he says, thanks for your podcast. I'm a father of three, realtor and aspiring investor. Needless to say, my time is always limited, thus I have to be selective on my podcast time. I appreciate your time and thank you for helping me make the most of my time. Please keep the shows coming. Here's to law of the first deal. Listen, I really appreciate that, Mr. Martinez. If you enjoy the show, go ahead and go to iTunes and leave me a review. I love reading those and I'll, I'll shout out the review of the week. All right. So um, also I want to announce that the Financial Freedom Summit in October is completely sold out. I initially targeted a, a smaller class size and there was so much demand that I doubled the capacity, but now we're completely full. So I, this is a really hands-on experience where participants will experience what it's like to do their first apartment building deal. And because of the demand, I will do this again in the spring. So if you want to get on the waiting list for that, Go to themichaelblanc.com forward slash event and just sign up for the waiting list uh, there. And that'll probably be after tax season in the spring. So early mid-May or so, we'll do this again. I really appreciate it. So let's move on to the show today. I have on the show today, Damien Lupo, and he has been incredibly successful uh, over the last 25 years. He started and owned more than 30 different companies, including insurance agency, precious metals firms, venture capital company, a financial consulting firm, and more than a dozen real estate investment development companies. And he's uh, also the founder of Yokido, and, which is his own martial arts studio and holds three other black belts. He's a five-time author, financial consultant for accredited investors and business owners. And, you know, his personal philosophy centers on self-responsibility and a conviction that the only path to freedom is through what he calls candor, growth, and a big vision. And uh, that big vision ideally is what drove him to found Total Control Financial in 2016 is everything around high growth, 10x growth, and 10x impact for the client, the team, and the shareholders. He's all about high growth. What we focus on in this episode is not his success but on his massive failures in real estate early on. He does have an eye. He definitely thinks big. He, he just lives big, thinks big, and he grew his real estate company big. But he made so many mistakes, including 119 unit that he'll talk about, that he basically lost everything, uh, including $2 million on this one deal. And he admits that he did made many, many different mistakes, through, both through his single family house investing that he scaled 150 houses, as well as his first multifamily deal that he did. And uh, and and not only are we going to be able to, to learn from his experience so we don't make those mistakes, but we'll also get insight into how transformational these several years were that the deepest in his you know financial history and experience have been and how that impacted his life in very meaningful ways that go far beyond the success and the financial success that that he has had since then really really fascinating episode where we go uh we go pretty deep on what it means to fail and be successful with investing let's get right into the show hey damon welcome to the show today man it is good to be here thanks for having me I'm so thrilled. Uh, you have such a huge wealth of experience in your past, real estate and non-real estate. Uh, and you, I think you started off with with real estate, and we want to focus on that here. So many valuable lessons from, you know, your experiences, your successes and failures. 
why don't we start? How did you get started in real estate? How did that come about? I, I tripped into it. I mean, this is it's kind of a funny thing that some of the best things in life we just sort of stumble into. And and I, I picked up a book. I'd been listening to Jim Rohn. I picked up a book called Rich Dad Poor Dad. And then I went to a seminar Jeez. and all of a sudden I was I owned every possible strategy under the sun from every speaker that was on stage. And I, I went home with an extra suitcase full of stuff and I started doing it. This was like uh, early 2000. And uh, it was really just going out in the trenches and figuring a lot of stuff out. It wasn't, there wasn't really anything formal. I mean, I had a bunch of tapes, so I had people that I was leveraging from and, and it started there, man. It was a pretty raw startup. Now, why did you, back up a little bit, why did you want to get started in real estate? What was going on at the time that made you look around? It's a good question. I was I had a, an insurance agency, and it was funny because in my my brilliance at twenty years old, I think I was twenty or twenty one, I looked at the people that were making the most money in, in insurance, and there was this one guy that was making a million bucks a year, and I said, "Gosh, I don't know if that's enough." And <laughs> I, I was thinking about real estate one day, and I, I thought, "Gosh, you can do whatever you want in real estate. There's no real limit." So million was was too small, and and I tried to do both at the same time, and and the insurance company said, "We're going to invite you to make a choice." You can either stay here and focus here or you can leave. And I said, real estate's the place for me to go. So I said goodbye, sold the book for a few bucks and and um, off I went into the real estate abyss. Gotcha. So you were doing insurance and real estate at this kind of same time and it wasn't your way of trying to quit your job. You just wanted more money. Yeah. I mean, it was it, that's, yeah. that's all it was. It was it just more. <laughs> so once you finally made the real estate, to jump to real estate, what kind of strategy, what were you pursuing? What were you doing at the time? The first thing I did, I, I bought a house on my Visa card. I took over a, a mortgage and and I was going to just basically sell it on on payments. I was going to be a landlord slash bank. And that was my my strategy. I decided, well, it kind of accidentally ended up being a remodeler too. So I was over there fixing roofs, falling off the roofs, electrocuting myself and all the fun stuff you learn. And then interesting thing that happened about four months in, I had strategies for getting more property, but I was really sabotaging myself and I wasn't really paying attention to the fact that I was going bankrupt. And I did a financial statement after playing Robert Kiyosaki's game Cashflow on my own life and realized I was 30 days away from bankruptcy. And I went, holy crap, I need to do something. I need to like return phone calls from people that are wanting to rent these houses and sell me more houses. And I bought eight more houses the next month. So it was a really powerful kick in the butt to go do something. And, and I just kept doing the same thing over and over again, which is a little tidbit for people. Don't do 47,000 strategies. Pick one and do right, it a that's, lot. That's true. Why were you going bankrupt? What were you doing? What was happening? So I, I had my, I, I bought the house and I actually had picked up another one and I had no income because I kept messing around with the house. I wasn't returning phone calls from people that wanted to actually give me a down payment and rent it. So I just wasn't doing the other side of the transaction. And people that wanted to sell me houses, I wasn't calling them back. So I had a kind of a wealth temperature that was really low. And I just was stuck under it until I saw, I stared at bankruptcy pending and I went, oh crap. And it blew my thermometer apart. Right. Uh, no, no kidding. So what happened from that point on? How did you turn around? So at that point, when I bought those houses, the momentum of those really kicked me into gear. And I, and I think that's a, the valuable thing. Any momentum is helpful because it leads to other momentum. And, and over the next year, I ended up buying like another 50 houses in Arizona and then started moving into Alabama. And once I did that a few times, I realized I could do it as many times as I could, I mean, as, as I wanted to. And I just kept doing it over and over again. And the only thing that really messed that up was that I started thinking, ah, this is working. Let me do something different. Oh, yes. Oh, I have a similar problem. Yeah, this is great. I've mastered this. Let's move on. What did you move on to? 
I, I started doing more of the, the the higher end rehabs. I I thought this will be it, it works well in in Arizona and it worked in Alabama. So let me start going into other states. So I started just bouncing all over the place and and I thought, hey, it's easy. I can be all over the country. It's it's, it's a little bit more challenging because I didn't have I didn't build the team and that was a big problem. It was it was me bouncing and flying around and. And I was stretched too thin and I just wasn't able to pay attention to the investments. And so they started running away on me. So, all right. So what happened when you say you were running away uh, from you? Well, so I, I started losing track of, of my projects. I was sending money. So some of my stuff was making money. And then I was, and this is very common. We, we do something that's working. We go expand to something else. And the thing that's working ends up paying for the other thing that's not working. And so I was sending a lot of money to projects that weren't working just to keep them going, but I wasn't present. I, was, I wasn't actually there and I didn't have anybody looking after my stuff. So I ended up just spending hundreds of thousands and ultimately millions on projects that were just being built and built and built. And I think people were just enjoying it. It was like the the mice hanging out with the cheese and there was nobody there to to trap them. I mean, I was, I was feeding a lot of cheese to a lot of mice and I, I wasn't paying attention to the numbers and I wasn't paying attention to my projects. And that it gets, it, I mean, it'll eventually break you. And that's, that's what I did because my ego was starting to take over and wanted more and I wasn't I wasn't present to what was really going on. Yeah, so you were you were growing very rapidly and you were doing primarily single family house flips and multi geographies. Now, I remember you saying you also at one point uh, did a multifamily. How did that come about? What how did that fit into the whole picture? Well, what I realized is with with the houses that those can work. I I realized that if I did, I ended up with at one point 150 houses. I realized I could have 150 houses on one piece of property and there was mm. a different way to to scale this and and so I, I had some partners and, and we talked about our strategy going forward. Was it going to be thousands of houses or was it going to be multifamily? And we decided we, we'd go after the multifamily. So one of the guys found a, a property in Memphis and we we took it down. We, we bought it and uh, that was the the intro into, into multifamily. And I, I learned how, I think I learned damn near every mistake you could make and, and how to write really big checks on every caveat of, of multifamily in that one project. So that was that was my entrance into that that world. This is great. So all right, so you learned a bunch of stuff through the single family house investing. You layered on top of that this multifamily, which sounds like you gave you a, a whole bunch of other lessons. So start with some of them. What what <laughs> what did you learn from this? Well, one of the things that I learned is that you you either need to be in like in the middle of your project, like you're physically there and you get what's going on, or you need to have somebody that is a really valuable, really a, a team member that has massive integrity that's running that thing. And I didn't have either one. I was not in Memphis and I didn't have anybody that, that really had a, a, an interest in the property except for me sending them cash. And, and so me being disconnected from it, I would get a report. Everything is good. Send us another $100,000 for the remodel. And I kept doing this and I'd, I'd fly out every month or two and I'd see the progress or it was more like chaos. I don't know if it was actual progress. And I was, I, it started before that. It was one of the best deals you can ever do is the deal that you don't do. And when I when I first had this property under contract, there was a point where I had like $40,000 in earnest money and it was about to go hard. So I could leave the deal and get all my money back. And then if I went another week, I my, my 40,000 was hard. The 40,000 went hard. And then at that point, I got stupid. I stopped thinking about maybe I shouldn't do this deal. I was just cheerleading the deal. And it really turned out to be a bad deal. But because my money was hard, I didn't want to feel like I'd made a mistake. And that's a really dangerous space to be in where you're not seeing anything except the go, the go, 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 the green light. And you're not willing to say, okay, I'm going to take the loss. The 40,000 would have been a really good plan to go and do a, a good deal in, in multifamily. Instead, I ended up losing like $2 million. So 
that was that was a huge lesson in the numbers will tell you a story. And I stopped looking at the numbers. So if the numbers are good, that's great. If they're not, you need to run. Right. So so being able to say no to a deal, especially when you have forty thousand dollars on the line, the temptation is hey, let's just go with it because I'm gonna lose forty thousand dollars. You know, it, it, when I got started also with the restaurants and even with real estate, I never thought about the downside. Never even occurred to me. It was like not even, it could never happen. Nothing could ever go wrong. And, you know, now I'm always going, hey, you know, what's what could go wrong with this deal? What can I do to kind of mitigate that risk? I mean, it, it, you know, and I did the same thing with the restaurant. I just kind of started building on top and top and top, even though there really wasn't a, a strong foundation. It was just kind of, let's just grow as quickly as possible because I know, you know, everybody's economies of scale is the way to go. And it sounds like that's what you were doing. And Maybe you didn't have the team in place yet, and that comes with time. It takes time, right? You gotta you have to test the team. You gotta stress stress it a little bit, and then if they can handle it, then you can add something on top of it. And it sounds like a little bit like what I was doing in restaurants. I said, let's just pile it on. That's a, that's a good way to. I, I love that that you really do want to have a team, and then you want to stress test them. It's kind of like when you stress test a heart with a, an EKG and at the hospital, you're really putting it under pressure to see how it responds. And everything looks good when everything is booming. It all kind of works. I mean. It, Unless you're really bad, and I, I've done the really bad ones, so even in a boom, it was it turned out bad sometimes. But I love that it's you want to test before you really go all in. If you just go all in and you use your glands, like you're really emotional about your thing, versus looking at the reality of, hey, these people are tried and true. That's a that's a really important lesson, and people tend to be too overzealous or anxious to give things time. They're too interested in making all their money now. I think they just read Tim Ferriss's book too many times, and they're like, ah, oh, four hours, and I'm rich. Interesting you, you bring that up. I, I used to, I'm still working on, I have a weakness where I've uh, delegated too early because I read the Tim Ferriss book. It's like, you want to delegate and shove everything out so you have to, all you do is sit back and count the money. Yep. And that's what I did. And and what I found myself was I was delegating too soon. Um, the team wasn't actually ready for it. Uh, it was too soon to to pull back. And, and and I think there was a certain amount of complacency. I did it for the right reasons, which is to grow as fast as possible. I, you know, I get that. And so it's also some of the mistakes I, I made uh, early on. Now, in your, for example, on this Memphis project here, what are some of the things that you feel you could have done differently? Assuming you move forward with the deal, was the deal sound when you bought it or was it a mistake to begin with? In other words, could it have been done, handled differently after you closed on it? Yeah. One of the things that I would have done differently is I would have had somebody alongside me that had actually done a deal like that. It was me going in there and saying, okay, I'm going to remodel and then fill up 119 units and I've not done that before. I have 150 houses in seven states. I mean, that was my thinking. Hey, this is just a lot of houses in one place. It was different. It was all at once. And one of the things I would have done, I would have either moved there or I would have made sure that somebody on my team that was a partner was actually there all the time and knew what they were doing. There's a reason that professional investors hire teams. The ideas are secondary by far to the actual team that's going to execute. And you want to know that your team has actually been through something. Even if it's not with you, at least they've done something. And what I found pretty quickly is that my team hadn't really been in it. They were some kind of mom and pop remodelers and a guy with a really good story that claimed he could project manage. He project managed me right out of $2 million. And I, I made that's that amazing. call. Yeah. Did you have a professional property manager manage that thing, or were you kind of self managing it with through these through these team members? It, it was the team members, and it was it was me. I mean, it was, it was it was my internal property management that was really overseeing them, but there was really nobody watching. And and even right. what we were watching, we didn't know what to watch because the when you take on 119 houses effectively in one space all at once, you've got to be. I mean, there's a professional way to do that, and then then there was the version of mine 
where I just was out there and painting everything and buying appliances in the wrong order and and just money was flying and I lost complete control of it. And that was that was the problem. Right. And I, I remember when I did my first uh, 12 unit deal, I'd interviewed a property manager. I, you know, I, I interviewed several of them and I selected one. And I was not really getting the results from them. I was chasing them for numbers that we had, we struggled with just uh, filling the spaces up. He had some bad advice, which now turns out in retrospect. So another weakness of mine uh, is that I tend to be over loyal with team members, right? So I'm like, I can make this person live up to his true potential if I just work with him long enough, <laughs> right? And so that's what I was doing with this property manager. And and you know when you when you start micromanaging someone, it's a strong sign that you probably have the wrong person there if it's going on for too long. And it took me way too long to replace him. And I can tell you from a before and after comparison, after having replaced that, which was a pretty painful process. And but once that new guy was in place, it was like night and day. I mean, it was like it was like a I was like, oh, a whole new world opened up. And I'm wondering what would have happened if you had found a professional property management company who perhaps specializes in turnaround assets like this. He would go about and say, here's exactly what I would do because I've done this 20 times before, da, 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 done. And all of a sudden, you would have turned this ass around. Instead of losing $2 million, you would have made $2 million. I I don't know. I mean, I'm just – it could have been a possibility. Um, it, it it was – you know, the, the, one of the, the the mistakes that I made, and I think this is really common with people, is that they, they start out with something and before they had the experience of working with pros. So, you mentioned something about delegating too fast. I mean, and I've done that too. What I was really doing was abdicating responsibility. I was like, oh, I'm just going to push it. This person will take care of it and then I move to the next thing because I'm going so fast. And mm-hmm. with with pros, one of the things that we quickly realize is that pros are not cheap. And you make way more right. money by investing in them. And what we tend to do is we, we turn into a Walmart shopper with professionals and we look for the cheapest thing that turns into a mess because we don't realize yeah. how much the professional is actually going to make us. We think it's an expense and it's it's an mm-hmm. amateur rookie mistake. So you you really have to shift that and go, okay, what is the track record? Like if, if we'd done what you were suggesting, I wish you and I were friends 10 years ago because you would have said, all right, who's the turnaround artist that can run this thing? And I would have said, oh. Well, I, I'm telling you that now. Yeah. I wouldn't have never said that, you know, 10 to <laughs> 15 years ago. Right. I was the same way. I, I, was, a, I was a Walmart shopper, right? Mm-hmm. I'm like, hey, you know, I can do this without an attorney. Mm-hmm. Right. That's I don't need an attorney to, to review my promissory note that I, you know, I just loaned a hundred grand and now I lost because it wasn't personally guaranteed, you know, stupid <clears throat> stuff like that. Uh, it's, it, you really do get what you pay for. Now you, you do have to look and you have to, you know, shop around, but you typically get what you pay for. And it sounds like you, you were trying to do the same thing. I can, first of all, you're probably saying, you know, I need to do this myself. I can learn it. And there's some, some value there. Yeah. And by the way, I'm going to make more money if I do it. <laughs> Yeah, it's a it's a good brain uh, twist. Those two things. I'll learn a lot, and 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 I should do this, and and then it it makes sense. Like I've I've been my own attorney. I remember doing that. And oh sure. Oh my gosh, the amount of money that cost me <sighs> makes me <laughs> makes me sick. <laughs> you know, sometimes we need to experience pain for ourselves, mm-hmm. Damien. And you know, there, we can we can leverage like our what we can teach people and what we're going to share now doesn't mean that people aren't going to stub their toe and they're they're not going to have the learning experiences because we can't live our lives through just other books and things. We actually have to do it, and I think that's valuable. The question is, do you want to do the exact same thing that a lot of other people have done, or do you want to make up some new mistakes that you could teach other people? And I think there's a, a value in taking us leveraging this and other people. And then creating your own unique mistakes. I mean, that's that's maybe a difference. Well, the question for me is, and I asked myself, and I'll ask you the same question. Did you have a mentor while this was going on? Were you working with someone? 
The mentor question is is big because I, I love mentors. I have a mentor. I have coaches. I've had coaches for many years. And the the most money I lost was when I thought I didn't need a mentor. I didn't need a coach. I made millions and I went, eh, this, this mentor is costing me at the time 10,000 bucks a month for a half hour conversation. And I thought, <laughs> right. I can do a lot right. with $10,000 a month. Yeah, I lost 5 million bucks as soon as I, right. over two years after I fired him. So there's always value in having the right people giving you feedback, calling you on your shit. I mean, it's, mm. it's really, really powerful. And I mean, if you don't have that, you're just going to miss the stuff. Every world-class person has a coach. Even, even Bill Gates has a coach. His name is Warren Buffett. I mean, everybody yeah. that does something has a coach. But you know what? I, 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 like I said, I used to be the, the Walmart shopper with coaches as well. And I remember early on, especially with the restaurants, I mean, I don't know what the hell I was thinking. I did not have a restaurant mentor at all, at all. I just did it myself, right? And it was like, woohoo, we're going to do this ourselves. I don't know what, what, where that confidence came from. I think it was probably more arrogance than anything else. Now, the question is, if you had a mentor in this regard, especially with this, with this building that you were, we're talking about here, even as you're building your single family house portfolio, would you have listened? I think my ego was, was driving too hard at that point for even if I had one, because th there's value in, in having made mistakes and having the humility around that. And if you're the smartest person on your team, it's probably a problem. And I, yeah. at that point, I had that my inner team was really a bunch of yes people. And that was, I mean, nobody was challenging me on this stuff. And, and as much as I believe in having the numbers and having those speak, you can, you can make numbers dance and you can make a story out of anything. And, and that was, I was buying my own BS. So I don't know that I was in a space where I could have even listened to it. I see that pe people come to me sometimes and they want help. And I, I look at them and I go, no, you don't. You, it doesn't matter how much you write a check for. It doesn't matter what you say. You're not going to listen. So no, when you're ready, maybe we'll talk, but I wasn't in that space. I think I had cut out and decided I need to go beat myself up for a bit, which I did. So if you had to do it again, right? You know what you now, you have a certain degree of humility that you perhaps you didn't have before. Uh, and, and, you know, if you had to do it again and you're building a single family house portfolio, you're getting in this 119 unit, what would you have done differently for both of those? Without a doubt, I would, I would be doing it with somebody that had already done them. I would have leveraged off of that. I would not go into the thing saying, okay, I'm going to make this up and learn as I go. And either having a, a process of being an apprentice with somebody or doing a deal with somebody that's already done it and you're investing with them or or those type of things, I would have done that to learn. I would have not gone out and just said, okay, I'm going to make this up. Like I did my restaurant experience where I started building a restaurant. I had that whole thing and it was 2008 and you can imagine the timing was about as bad as it could be. And so I got emotional about the investment instead of being really methodical. There, there's a very professional way to approach investments. And it is that every investment is bad until proven otherwise. And when you do that, you make the investment prove itself to you instead of you going over there and saying, this is great. And then you're, somebody has to prove that it's bad. Nobody's going to prove it's bad because everybody wants to do the deal. And it's, it's just a really healthy way that, that pros approach things. You know, show me why this isn't the worst possible thing I could do with my money. And it'll help you keep your money and do really good deals. Yeah, because a mentor has has some has experience. They see a lot of deals, and they can put what you think is like the best deal in history into perspective. And number one, hey, it may not be the best deal. Number two, there's going to be a second opportunity. It's not like the only opportunity you have. And I just remember you know, early on when I went full time, I I really I felt this internal pressure to deploy the capital to do something, right? To do something, and being patient really was incongruent with that that goal. But had I had a mentor, they would have said, hey, just calm down a little bit. You know, you're on a, 
you know, a life path here. You don't have to do something in the next 30 days. Why don't you relax a little bit and, and see what you, what's going on and, and be a little more patient. That same experience happened in, in 2007, 2006, 2007, before the markets really collapsed. I'd sold a bunch of houses and I was moving into these other projects. And because I wasn't willing to take a time out, I was so anxious to have the capital redeployed and to be in the game. Yeah. If I'd gone on vacation for a year, it would have I would have made five, six, seven million dollars because that's what it cost me by being in the game, forcing a bad issue, bad deals. So having somebody giving you perspective on that, the crazy thing about a mentor, somebody that's been through this stuff, is they can pick it up with spidey senses. They they don't even need to look yeah. at spreadsheets. It's they can intuitive. Just, it's it is intuitive, right. and that's what we right. would never have until we've gone through it. So the leverage, the power you get, they may spend five minutes, and it may be worth a hundred thousand bucks to you. But we would never know that, and we a spreadsheet will never never tell you that. It's it's really powerful to have those type of instincts as part of your team. And then the second lesson, obviously, is building your team. What is a what is a better way to build your team and to delegate? What have you learned there? Well, you got to set expectations right up front with people, and you've got to be really open. Um, and this idea that it'll all work out, and we're just going to have gut instincts, and we have good people, and they've been my friend or or whatever. If you're not clear about what your expectations are who knows what you're going to get? And it, it leads to a mess and it leads to friction. So for example, property managers being really clear, here's what my expectations are. Every week, this is what I'm looking for. And then getting examples of things. And one of the mistakes I've made is that I'll, I'll communicate with somebody and I'll say, does that make sense? And they'll say, yeah, well, it makes sense from their perspective, whatever they heard, but who knows what they heard. And so having people really share back what exactly they heard and what they're going to do in their words is a really powerful thing with an attorney, property manager. It doesn't make any difference, but having them tell you what they're going to do, that simple thing with a team will create so much clarity and so much peace. It'll change your life. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, so all, all things that you've uh, you've done, you've, uh, it sounds like there's some pretty dark times. What is there a moment that you regard as like the lowest depth of misery? The lowest depth of misery. Yeah, there, there, there are a couple of, of moments. So I guess I bounced off the bottom a couple of times. The one of them was, <laughs> and, and it's very rarely just one bottom, right? It's right. Sometimes it takes repeated abuse to get it, to get it. Yeah, I think I might be a slow learner sometimes too, because the universe gives you yeah. these lessons, and then if you don't learn, it gives you another lesson and it bounces you and bangs you up. When I was going through my my reinvention process, when I was when I was crashing, one of the things that I found out about myself is that my net worth and my properties and everything was really me. Like I had, I had decided that my net worth was my self-worth. And so when I lost my net worth and I was negative millions of dollars, I didn't have any identity. I mean, I was literally lost. And I realized how dangerous that is. If it's just about the money, if there's no focus on anything that's more impactful, whether it's your family or it's impact on, on people in the world, whatever you're doing, I didn't have that. It was just more money. That almost cost me my life. So I'm really, really careful now to have the why, the the impact being the driver and the wealth being the side effect so that I'm not, because things cycle. And there's a shift that it's really powerful when you shift away from cash and cash flow as your freedom and you really move to confidence that you've got the ability to to create. You don't get so wound up in market cycles or the possibility of something going bad because you realize that you've got the the freedom to create on demand. And that's what I didn't have. I just had all my my confidence built into the cash. And when that went away, I was lost. So that was it was a dark space. And that's something that you never want to go to. You want to separate those things big time. How were you able to how were you able to free yourself from associating yourself with the net worth? 
There were a couple of years of, of conversations where it was it was buried deep down that there was something that was worth more than just the cash, and it was it was bubbled up. I mean, and that's one of the values of a coach or a therapist or, or people in our lives that can hold the space to bring that out. And I had somebody that was a, a gift, I mean, a gift from the universe that showed up in my life. And I spent two years in a conversation every week where that was the question. And it was really the question was, what is true? And when I got to the core, 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 what is true is that I am not my balance sheet. And I, I didn't realize that I didn't, I didn't get that. And so that was, that was the process I went through. And then I found a place to start contributing where I wasn't just consuming. And that was a big shift too. It changed everything. Interesting. So talk about that shift where you went from consuming to contributing. I went through something similar where I had a similar shift from consuming to contributing in my dark times on the, on the restaurant. And it was a shift uh, that happened basically while the shit was hitting a storm. So it wasn't like the storm had passed and I figured out, ooh, all good. Now what do I do? It was literally, it was a decision I made during the storm. And so I don't know, what was that like for you? The consumption space that I was in, I was in a very hedonistic, I'm just going to consume, I'm going to make a lot of money and I'm going to consume. I, I think back to my, my American Express black card and, and going out there and spending as much money as possible on the most expensive wine and food. And just like, I, I was, I think there was a piece of me that was really concerned that I wasn't worth it. And if I consumed it, it they couldn't take it away. So that was part of my consumption. <laughs> it's a little bit flawed or a lot. And so that was uh, my focus was on the consumption and I really wasn't contributing. All I was doing was doing some housing and getting money, but it was really just about me. I mean, that was the main focus. The The shift when I started focusing more on, on the contribution and it wasn't going into a martyr space. I find that oftentimes people say, I do these things. I'm like, you're just there being a martyr. There's no circulation between the consumption and being grateful and accepting other people and, and, and the gifts and the contribution. So I started moving in to the contribution and then having a balance between that and the consumption. For me, the the contribution was was teaching. It was teaching martial arts and it was teaching financial literacy. And mm. those spaces gave me a place to give everything I had and be super present. And that's what started to pull me away from being a hedonist. That's interesting. I, I, I share a similar experience to, for you where I decided to teach and, and teach what I had, which was very satisfying. Uh, it didn't directly pay the bills early on, but, mm. but, but oddly what happened is it started paying the bills quicker than I would that would have thought, right? And I, I see this and other people, even some students, let's say. And so I see it with students who are trying to do their first deal and they have a they have an agenda, which is to obviously to help themselves financially. But I see the ones that are that have a more of a teaching or contributing mentality, they tend to be happier and more successful. I don't know what it is. I, I think there's a connection there. I think if you hold too tightly on to to money or that which you want, the harder it is to achieve it. It's like a reverse phenomenon. Uh, and I don't know if, if if we can explain that that further. I, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, it, what do we called it in, in America, at least? We're con I mean, we're literally called all the time consumers. That's, that's who our identity ends up being about consumption. And there is something there, – there's a, a, an interesting thing, and this may be somebody would call this the law of attraction or things, but when you become someone that's open and you're not constricted where you're, you're trying to hold on, when you try to hold on, you just think about your body and you're, you're shutting your ability to breathe and to, and to expand. I mean, this is what happens when you hold on real tight. And when you open up, you're able to breathe and see and focus and, and everything opens up. If you take away the breath, and this is a martial arts thing too, if you take away the breath, your tunnel vision starts to shrink really fast and you'll pass out. And that's really 
what we're doing when we're holding on so tight instead of opening up and breathing deep. And then you see a whole big world and you start able to, you're able to engage with it. And, and it's, it's a strange shift for people. And a lot of people will say, this is very woo. The reality is when you see people that are in that space, it's bliss. And there's, I mean, I've never seen somebody in that space that was not truly happy and had nothing to do with how much cash they had. They were genuinely happy. Why would anybody want anything other than that? Yeah, exactly. And uh, but that's, that's a difficult place to get to in life. I've got a buddy of mine in, in Orange out in LA area and he's in the middle of, of producing these these clothes like the hoodies and shorts and things. And it's fascinating because it's not about the hoodies or the shorts. It's about his his mission and it's it's about the ohm, the, the point of life. And, and really his whole uh, company is about putting these shorts on and getting into your ohm. And he, I've seen him shift over the years where he started building this thing up and I love being around him and so does everybody because it's about him being on point and eventually the financial will will catch up to him. I see him more happier than than probably he's ever been in his whole life because he's he's in his own and you can't think your way to your own. You literally have to go do something and see if it's the right own. Maybe it's not, then you do something else, but people go, "Well, I got to make sure it's the right one." No, you don't. You test it. Yeah, you test it. And sometimes we have to uh, experience that. We have to go through some dark days to kind of get there. Uh, it's odd. You know, you, you wish you would just learn it through wisdom, right? And a lot of people do. They look at the, you know, the wise person, old man, and they go, hmm, I get it. You know, I'm at peace, you know. Others like me have to experience trauma several times to kind of go, oh, oh, maybe maybe I'm not in control, right? Maybe... I don't control things. Maybe I'm not a, you know, I'm not my net worth. Maybe money isn't everything there is to it. And uh, sometimes it's more difficult to to learn that. Again, I think you're right. Being at peace is kind of where we want to get to in life. Whether whether we're successful or we're experiencing a hard time, being at peace throughout it all is is that's 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 awesome. That's where you want to be. There's a, a friend of mine that recently looked at me and he, I was actually kind of depressing. Um, he, he said, I, you're always writing. You're always spending all this time writing, you're writing down your vision and your, your goals and you're thinking on paper. And he was actually giving me crap about doing this. And I looked at him and I thought, what do you mean? He said, can't you just be at peace? And I said, this is really peaceful for me. It's just this really cool experience I have. And I'm, I'm thinking and, and I said, what about you? And he's like, I'm at peace. And I said, no, you're scared to death of your life. You're afraid and you're living in this, This you're playing not to lose. So people will delude themselves to think that it's okay, whatever they're doing, and then they'll crap on other people. And I, I find that fascinating. We try to justify our own experience and our own choices, even though they're wrong. And then we push down to kind of pull everybody into our box, like the crabs in the box, try to keep everybody in there. And it, it's it's unfortunate, but the, the truth is there's, there are people like us that are out there that are thinking differently. And you just have to find those people and spend your time with them. Yeah, and you bring up the uh, the lesson with the with the mentors again, and you know we're focusing a little bit unfairly on your on your early days, right? I mean, since then you've you've been very successful. You're five time author, you know, you're financial consultant, and uh, but it's sometimes those dark days that provide us that set us up for the success we are now, and I think it's I think it's fascinating. Uh, so I thank you for sharing that journey. What are you uh, really excited about right now? Well, you, you hit something just now, and that was the, the successes and, and fulfillment. There's a, a huge difference between those two. And, and today, I would say that I'm, I'm more fulfilled than I've ever been. And the successes in terms of the money, there was a bigger event 10 years ago. It hasn't, we're not there yet. Mm. And I'm, I'm totally happy with that. So the, the work I'm doing now is watching people transform. I mean, truly, really, I'm, I'm surrounded by a bunch of transformers. And I, I get to see people taking control of their life and really owning it. And I, I get to influence that. I get to share with them. 
And so the the work I'm doing is is getting people out of financial bondage. And it's it's not because I'm necessarily giving them the right tool or a tool or telling them the right strategy. I'm just I'm really shifting their awareness. And and then there's a way for them to take control of all this money that's been stuck. But if they don't, if people don't get those those handcuffs off of their money, they're going to just sit there and be afraid because it's literally like it's like jail. And not that I've been in jail, but I can imagine it probably sucks. So that that's the work that that I'm doing. It's it's helping people transform into that space of confidence, so that it doesn't really matter whether the money comes or goes or is there or it's a certain number. It's really about them trusting them, and it's being self responsible for their entire financial life. Right. Exactly. Right. Now, I, again, I appreciate you sharing these experiences. Uh, it's so important that uh, you know that you recognize you're not in control, uh, that you don't associate yourself, you know, with your net worth. Building a team, having mentors, that's great advice for anyone who wants to kind of get started. What's the best way for people to connect with you, Damien? Uh, best way to, to connect with me is is to come to DamienLupo.com. Uh, visit with me. The the work I've done and and the books that that I've written are there, and and you can get a copy of um, of a workbook that I created called the the Reinvented Life Workbook, and it's it's all the activities in that in that book. And I think that that applies to anybody, regardless of what they're doing, what investments, whether they're doing apartments or something else. It's really going to help them get clarity on on the things that they need to be thinking about that drive all the financial stuff. And so, get a copy of that. It's it's free. You can download it right there on the site. And, um, use that as a tool to keep you present to whatever decisions you're making. It'll help you go down the path that you're supposed to be on versus the one that maybe you're on or, or other people tell you you should be on. That's awesome. So DamienLupo.com, uh, also put in the show notes to michaelblank.com forward slash seven session 79. I'll put that in a link there as well. So hey, I want to thank you again, Damien. Appreciate you coming, coming on board and sharing your experience here with all of us. Michael, I appreciate the time. I appreciate everybody listening. It's awesome. The, the work you're doing and and I'm, I have no doubt people's lives are going to be changed because of the conversations you're having. So I appreciate you doing what you do. The two lessons from today's show, I think, is that you should have a mentor that you're working with, either an unpaid one, if you can find that person, or a paid one. It is so important. Now, you're still going to make mistakes, but you're going to try, you're going to avoid the major ones where Damien essentially lost $2 million. Those are, those are very, very avoidable mistakes because a mentor is going to put certain things in perspective. He's going to caution you. He's going to, uh, he's going to advise you. That's number one. Number two is to really spend time building your team. Do the best you can building your team, but then take action if the team is not correct. And it's a mistake both Damien and I have made early on is to not make corrections when the team is not there. Stress test your team. Uh, see how they perform. And then once they do perform, then give them more responsibility. So really building your team. And the most important member of your team uh, is going to be your property manager. Absolutely. That property manager is going to make or break a deal. You get a, a, a bad one or a mediocre one. That's exactly the kind of results you're going to get versus someone who's just going to get it done. And the result will be just absolutely amazing. So those are the two primary lessons I took away from, from Damon today. The third thing also is that you know, failure is painful when you go through it, but the transformation that can happen if you let it is is amazing. And for me personally, the financial setbacks that I've had really have made me the person that I am today, much more resilient, more cautious, but also I'm in a much better position to help other people who may be experiencing hardships as well. So don't knock the bad times, just take them and, and expect them. Again, you want to try to avoid the big ones if you can. And I certainly could have avoided the big ones as well with a mentor early on in, in my restaurant business as well. So anyway, hope you enjoyed that, both practical for your investing as well as for your life. 
And um, if you haven't done so already, make sure you hop on over to look at the, the show notes, which is themichaelblank.com forward slash session 79. Also download Damien's workbook. It's at damienlupo.com. And if you haven't done so already, grab my free book as well. It's called The Secret to Raising Money to Buy Your First Apartment Building. And that's available at themichaelblank.com forward slash ebook. Really appreciate you guys. Take care, and I'll catch you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Block. For more free podcasts, articles, and videos, go to themichaelblanc.com. There, you can also download the free ebook, The Secret to Raising Money to Buy Your First Apartment Building. Till next time.